Welcome to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. I am, uh, I've, I've had a lot of uh, pleasures in my professional career re- relating to the sort of odd track that I've taken. Uh, and w- one of the great benefits uh, of the sort of zigzagging path that I've, uh, that I've been on is I've gotten to meet and work with a lot of really interesting uh, and really uh, excellent uh, people in the field, uh, architecture, development, uh, you name it. And uh, today, I have the pleasure of talking to one of those people who I've known now for 20 years. Uh, that's Tim Bussey, who is uh, an architect in the St. Louis area. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to, I'm glad to reconnect. So Tim and I uh, first met uh, 20 years ago because he was the town architect uh, with Whitaker Builders for Newtown St. Charles, uh, which was a uh, which is a massive um, new urbanist project outside of St. Charles or outside of St. Louis in St. Charles, Missouri. Uh, Tim, uh, the, one of the reasons that I was prompted to talk to you was your post that this is the 20th anniversary of that project. How's that possible? <laughs> time goes by yeah. time goes by and, and uh uh yeah i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a crazy deal so tim uh i thought it'd be interesting first for people to understand you you have a unique background uh, as an architect uh how you came to work for a production home builder and you know what what led you to the place where 20 years ago you were doing uh, work with greg whitaker uh and undertaking newtown st charles so my background is uh, in Southern California, actually, and I went to school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and became a licensed architect and uh, really enjoyed working on residential projects. And uh, probably nearest and dearest to my heart was affordable uh, projects. I did a number of high-end homes in, in San Diego County. Um, and uh, through kind of a weird series of events, including the uh, savings and loan crisis in the 80s, I bounced around to first Seattle and then ended up uh, in St. Charles, Missouri, which was the result of a job search that was everything west of the Mississippi River. <laughs> and so I ended up about a mile and a half from the Mississippi River. <laughs> Um, so at any rate, when I got here, I helped uh, the local chapter of the AIA help me understand that there were very few residential architects in the St. Louis region. I think there were like three to five firms, very small, doing high-end work. And uh, that most, like 95% of the housing was done by production home builders. And um they alerted me to the fact that uh, one of the largest home builders at the time, Whitaker Homes, um, was looking for a staff architect. And I had never really considered working for a builder before. Um, but I thought that uh, I would give it a try. And so the first thing I did before I even interviewed was I went and looked at the product that they were producing. And it was con- conventional in every sense of the word. It was garage-dominated, suburban, cul-de-sac, tract homes. Um, 
with very little design. But one thing that was really interesting to me was that they were very well built and they were extremely affordable. We were selling houses with lots back in 80, uh, in 94, 95 for $50 a square foot for the house and the lot. And that was really uh, impressive to me. And so I decided that I would uh, try to get a job with Whitaker and learn how they did it. And so that's what I did. And so for the first eight years, um, I worked in doing a number of things other than track houses. I also did some golf course clubhouses and some golf course maintenance facilities and some community buildings. And um, those were fun, but we got to do one of those about every 12 to 18 months. And, um, but Greg Whitaker, the company president was very uh, interested in Seaside, Florida and had been visiting Seaside, Florida ever since he graduated from uh, KU architecture school. Um, Every year he'd go down and, he was really struck by the idea that you could park your car and not drive anywhere for a, a week. So at any rate, so that was kind of a dream that he had mentioned to me from time to time. And I didn't see how we were going to ever be able to do it. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I've, I don't think I've ever talked to you about um, all these years was in that period when he was thinking uh, about, was, you know, admiring Seaside and thinking about it, um, how did you, what was your role at that point? Were you, were you trying to help him get to that place? Did you have a lot of knowledge about seaside or, you know, new urbanism at all, or how did that go? That That's a great question. When I lived in Seattle, I happened upon a book at the local bookstore called, uh, compact neighborhood design, I think it is, um, which was a, precursor to new urbanism and I read it and uh, having been involved in my neighborhood uh, association in San Diego, I was really interested in creating neighborhoods, not just buildings, Um, because no matter how good an architect you are, you always have a neighboring building or you have something that it fits into a context And, and neighborhoods are the context that you really should be designing at when it comes to uh, building community. Um, so at any rate, um, he mentioned it and I was open to the idea of creating something like Seaside, have, but had no idea how we would do it or how the company would take it. At the time, we had we were about 500 employees. We had our own uh, subs for, we self-performed about 70% of the building process. We developed land. Um I mean, we did it all. It was we were vertically integrated, and I was part of that. Um, so I was encouraging, but I was doubtful that we would do it. And one of the things that Greg said, which is absolutely true, is that timing is everything. And he didn't think the timing was quite right. Timing wasn't quite right. He hadn't found the land, so we, you know, we ended up doing what we were doing um, for about eight years. Until one day he showed up at my door at my office and said, let's go for a ride. I've got a piece of land I want you to look at. Um, and uh, I think this is where we're going to build Seaside. <laughs> Basically. 
Yeah. It's, you know, it, one of the things I think that is uh, interesting and a challenge in all this, you know, uh, I were, I was working on the consulting side while you were doing this and, and running an architecture and urban design firm. And we had a lot of back and forth with very different kinds of developers. Uh, and uh, there was always this tension between, you know, like, us trying to convince uh, existing developers to try the new urbanist approach versus people like Greg and others who uh, already had an interest and wanted to do something different. Uh, and I think that tension still exists within the field. There's still a lot of people who kind of tend to think they can take maybe an existing production builder and, and really either convince them or force them by regulation to do uh, a TND uh, I mean, what's your what's your reaction to to all of that? And I mean, I guess with the impact that that must have been an incredible impact to have you know your boss be the one that says, "I want to I want to try this." I, I think it was really important, actually, because Greg wanted to live in a place like that. He could not wait to move into a place in Newtown and be able to walk to places. It was extremely personal. And it was important to Greg and his family. He saw a benefit to it. So it, that personal level of commitment is something that you really can't legislate. You really, um, you really want to build it because you want to build it. Um, and plus, I mean, Greg said, and it's true that before Newtown. Um, the regulations, the law, the zoning, the planning was all designed to support conventional suburban development. And as a builder, you come into a municipality and say, well, what do you what do you accept from a building standpoint? And at the time, um, I remember we were at another community in St. Charles doing a project and they would only the aldermen or the councilmen and the planning staff would only go one town over to see a project that they were considering in their municipality. So there was this incredible flattening of potential design options. And to build Newtown, even though we had no idea how to do it, we knew that we were going to have to throw out everything and, and do something um, you know, uh, as a parallel track to conventional suburban yeah. development. And so part of that, then throwing out, uh, everything is uh, starting by figuring out, you know, hiring a planning firm. Uh, so in your case, you all hired DPZ, um, who, who's obviously the sort of flagship firm in the new urbanism. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, but uh, I, I mean, I was at the original Charette. I was actually sort of a, a Charette, sort of a Charette crasher. Um, and Guru. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I can't remember how I heard about it originally. It may have been through our mutual friend, Marina uh, Corey at DPZ. And I just said, can, can I, you know, can Brian and I come and just crash this for two or three days, which, which we did. And it was really an awesome experience. But so, but from your all standpoint, you know, you're having to remake everything kind of from the ground up. And I, so at some point you decide you wanted to hire a planner, what advice or would you give to other people in the field when you were looking at, you know, we've got to remake this whole process and somehow you selected a certain planner to do it. How did you go about that? And then where do you, what, where did it take you after that? We, we interviewed three firms. I, I shortlisted the firms. And of course, DPZ was on it because of Seaside. 
Um, then Greg and I took a, uh, a lot of different trips and we visited a lot of different places. And uh, he visited, and it wasn't just these planners, any new urban community that he could drive to, he would go and look at. And uh, then the ones that he couldn't drive to, I flew to. So I got to see a lot of a lot of varieties, and a couple uh, stuck in our minds. One was Kentlands, uh, one was Hale Village Plantation, and that actually was really helpful to me because it was a production builder mentality, and uh, but yet created something really uh, unlike any place I'd ever been. Um, so anyways, traveling around, and I remember Greg was somewhere in Indiana looking at a project that he had driven all the way to Indiana for, and he said, you know, the thing, he's on the phone, I'm sitting at this place, and there's like three houses, and he goes, you know, the thing I'm really struck with in New Urban Planning, this is 20 years ago, was how they're all failures, nothing they didn't have the juice to get it going and so he felt like timing was important he felt like momentum was important he felt like having a really good plan really good uh planning firm um was critical and so then so we ended up selecting dpz because they were the ones who were most intrigued by working with a uh, production home builder which was kind of interesting. The others were like, well, one was one was neutral and was used to working with smaller production firms. The other one, um, they we had to qualify to actually talk to them. We had to show them, you know, our financials and what we can do and all this stuff. And Greg's like, no, we're not going to do that. So then, at that point, you know, uh, DPZ produced a you know a plan, which uh, I think we're all familiar. If anybody who's been to Newtown or seen it, it's it's very authentic to, I think, the original plan, uh, what is on the ground. But you all had to remake uh, what you were doing internally in terms of house building uh, and design. How how much of what you were doing before on the conventional side were you able to sort of carry over and repackage um, with different uh, architecture or, you know, than, um, you know, from what, from a T&D standpoint? Zero. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I, for the first couple of years, I felt that the best metaphor was trying to turn a battleship because, because home building by nature is a factory process and it's repetitive and it's just site specific. You move the factory from lot to lot. lot. Um, and we had never built anything like this. We'd never built um off using an alley. We even didn't know how to, um, where to put the utilities. Um, there was not a lot of information. We were, and we, I mean, we, I'd like to say we were brilliant, but we, we were just trial and error was a lot of it. And so we built small kiosks in a factory to kind of work out the detailing of the buildings. These kiosks are 12 by 16. They're still in Newtown. They've been reused a number of times, but we, so we worked on the architecture of that, um, uh, we borrowed architecture from some places we went to. One of the things that was interesting when I moved to St. Louis was trying to get a handle of the architectural style of, of St. Louis region. And um, 
how St. Louis works as a community uh, or as a region. And um, so I spent a lot of time in the first five years thinking about that and how I ended up on the architecture side um, thinking about St. Louis is, is that it's a melting pot that things came from downriver, things came from upriver. And so it's kind of a, it's a, it's a rich stew of different styles. And um, um, I mean, it's a wonderful building tradition yeah. in St. Louis that's been pretty much lost. Yeah. It, it makes me feel like I should plug my brother's work here. So who uh, writes about the Mississippi river and, and the cities and towns up and down the Mississippi uh, all the time. And, and uh, he lives in St. Louis and uh, I think he would probably concur with all that. Uh, so, so then, you know, we could kind of test my memory here a little bit, but I remember in those early years when we, you know, once we got past the charrette and you were doing a lot of house design and we had some work uh, working with you in that time period as well. And if I recall correctly, you know, you all had an approach uh, that where there were like two or three things on the design and building of the house that you really, really wanted to get right. You know, maybe it was doors and windows, uh, et cetera. And then the rest of it was really a fairly simple box uh, approach. How how good is my memory on that? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, one of the things to be, that I learned before Newtown was that um, labor costs drive the cost of houses. So, I mean, materials go up and materials go down, but labor is a, is a large part of the cost of a house. And so being able to build efficiently allows you to build more houses and build them more affordably. And uh, one of the things Greg said at the beginning of Newtown was he wanted a place where if you could afford um, to qualify for any mortgage at all, if you can afford rent, that there would be a place if you wanted to live in Newtown, there would be a place for you. So there was that, uh, that kind of um, precipitated a wide variety of housing types and styles. And, um, but at the same time, we were thinking about styles and we were thinking about how you can build things um, that are of quality, but affordably. And so one of the things that I've been talking about my whole career is, is that you spend the money where, you, where, where it's important to you. And where it's important to you in terms of new urbanism is the pedestrian experience. So we worked really hard to develop a porch detailing system that was repetitive, but could be varied. And then we also, um, the three or four details that we talked about were the porch details, a quality window, which wouldn't be a vinyl extruded window, but it would be have some dimension to it. Um, how the building meets the ground is important as a detail and how the building meets the sky as an eve detail is important. So those are the details that kind of drive Newtown. And we also looked at um, how to build those efficiently and what was the cost of those things. So um, that one of our trademarks is having a clipped eave that's only a two inch overhang. And it's, it's very simple and it creates a very boxy looking building. And so attention needs to be paid where those sides and rears are exposed. But if you line them all up together, they look really great. 
So in that initial um, rollout, then uh, the first homes and all that were built. So what did you what did you learn from customers? How they were reacting uh, to what you were building? Uh, what you know what was happening that either confirmed or surprised you all as you entered that? Well, even before building started, there was a lot of interest, a lot of, I think uh, our final charrette presentation 20 years ago, we had 600 people to listen to Andres and Marina present the town plan. And from that, we developed a, a list of interested information, you know, people who are interested. And at first it was, you know, 500 people and then a thousand people. And before we even started selling, the mailing list was 5,000 people. So there was an interest. And we, before we had had like 30 people, you know, that was the most people who were interested in the convention. So we definitely felt like that kind of urged us on. Um, and then when we opened the sales center, which was in December of 2003, uh, all we had was we had the site was partially graded. We had a big ditch, which turned out to be the Newtown Avenue Canal. And we had the amphitheater graded and sodded. And that was it. And so we opened the sales center and it was like an alternate universe. Uh, you'd walk in. First of all, it was so crowded. I mean, you literally had to, you know, like raise your hands and kind of work your way through the crowd to get were, you know, to the other side of the room. And I kept hearing people go, finally, you know, these are smaller lots. You know, I don't have to spend all Saturday mowing my lawn. You know, these have porches. This is going to be interesting to have places to walk to. Um, so there was a whole group of people who were waiting for this kind of development and were familiar. And in retrospect, I kind of, I realized that if you're in St. Louis and you want to go to the beach, the closest beach is Fort Walton Beach. It's a 12-hour drive. But many, 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 many people in St. Louis drive to Fort Walton Beach and were familiar with Seaside and and the panhandle development of Seaside. So, so anyway, that kind of worked to our advantage. Um, that was one of the advantages. The other advantage, other than the town uh, plan concepts of walkability and uh, small lots. The other ones were Whitaker Homes built a quality house. So we had a, you know, we had built thousands of houses. So we had a, you know, a built-in audience. And then the third was we were relatively closer, close in to St. Louis. Uh, most of the development was happening 20 to 25 miles west of us. And we're about 20 miles west of St. Louis. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were still, we were close into the St. Louis County region. So and anyway, those were kind of helped. Were, were you able to track like where your uh, buyers were coming from? You know, were they, yeah. were they, were they coming from St. Charles County? Were they coming from farther afield or St. Louis city or anything like that? Um, all of that. I mean, so one, we got some North County, North St. Louis County uh, uh, people which we had been doing for the entire time we have been selling houses. But what was interesting is the first couple of years, we had kind of this clash between people who were moving from the city to a house that is new, but had traditional characteristics. Um, 
and a neighborhood that was more like the city of St. Louis and the inner ring suburbs. We also had people who were moving from farther west who needed to be closer to the to um, St. Louis. And those people were like two different cultures. So the people who were moving from the west into St. Charles were from the land of homeowners associations and garage dominated, you know, brick front houses where they all look the same and not knowing your neighbor. And, you know, those are generalizations, of course. But then the, you had the people from the city who were creative, more creative and more uh, just do what you want to do with your stuff. You know, so there was there was a people who were into control and people who weren't in control. And that they really, um, it's kind of an uneasy truce um, for those, for that, those kind of two groups of people. But yeah, and then the other thing is, is that we, St. Louis and St. Charles gets a lot of people who move here for work. And so we have a whole other group that come in uh, who are looking at it as a region and say, well, what's available? And so in St. Louis, you have tract houses that are new and you have historic houses that are typically, you know, 70 to 100 years old. There wasn't um, there wasn't something in between. And when I was looking at the MLS in the first couple of years, I realized that Newtown houses were a third thing. And it was a third thing that that wasn't didn't exist anywhere else in St. Louis. And that helped, I think, with our success. Mm-hmm. That's the third thing. Interesting. So, and, and obviously you guys had a tremendous success once the ball got rolling. I think I remember at one time it was something like the uh, fastest selling uh, development in St. Louis history and, and probably within like a, a huge area in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were the first four months when we had just the amphitheater, the Newtown Avenue ditch, and the sales center, we sold 438 houses in four months. And we had never built these houses before. We didn't have a sense of the budget. And so Greg decided that he had to stop selling houses until he built them and got a feel for how much things cost. I mean, that was a tremendous gamble, but he also felt that that, you know, 400 houses, we can we can get these built, we can kind of see what they cost, we can understand how long it's going to take. And at that point in time, we were, that was like two years, at least two years under best circumstances to, to complete those houses. So people were by, signing contracts knowing that they wouldn't be in their house for another two years at the end. So Yeah. So in that process, then once once you started building and people were moving in, and uh, and then you get a new crop of buyers, what uh, what were you all learning uh, from the design and house building process that you started adjusting? I'm, I guess I'm kind of curious, like in that in that world of doing a TND, what what sort of things were you learning that you needed to change and modify along the way? Uh, one of the Good, you know, we had many good ideas along the way, but one of the really great ideas that Greg had was that he wanted to build the smallest houses in the apartment mansions first before anything else, and he wanted to do that to show that they aren't scary and that they're they're you know just reasonably stand up 
good-looking building. What, why don't you describe? Why don't you describe what an apartment mansion is? And I'm a, an apartment mansion, um, in my mind, is like a house from a hundred years ago that, over time, had been subdivided into apartments. Um, there were good examples of that growing up where I grew up in Coronado, California, where there's this huge, you know, 5,000, 8,000 square foot houses. They also exist um, in, I think, University City and some in the city of St. Louis, but it's these vast mansions that um, ended up becoming workforce housing over a long period of time. And so what we did was we designed buildings based on floor plans that could be replicated for either cottages or row houses or townhouses, as they're sometimes called. But we assemble them differently and we put an exterior skin on them that make them look like large houses. And so the first buildings to go up were those and the cottage courts. The cottage courts were the first cottage courts to be built in St. Louis in 70 years. They looked really cute and they were super radical um, in the sense that they were small houses of a thousand square foot. They were on lots that were 1,600 square foot. They Some of them didn't face a street, uh, but instead faced a common green. They had garages that were detached from the lot. So you bought a house with a lot and a garage with a lot and they were they didn't connect which is these are all things that um the local municipalities would not allow you to do this in terms of the cottage courts um so when we started building the the apartment mansions along the canal uh people would walk down to the apartment mansions and they would at first think that they were big houses and oh this is really stately and really lovely and then they'd kind of go in and they go, wait a second, these are not big houses. These are like townhouses or what we call them apartment mansions. And actually, one of the things that sticks in my mind the most is, is that when we were selling, we didn't have any houses. We had houses that had one story front porches, but a couple of the apartment mansions had two story porches and we had people who'd come back to the sales center and said, we really want to have a two-story porch because you get up on the second level of that porch and you'd look at that Grand Canal stretch out in front of you and it was kind of like being a tree house. It looked really, I mean, it was really kind of a romantic thing. So we had buyers who came back and said, I want a double porch at my house. We never had offered that, never thought about it. Um, and... What I liked to, what I thought about was is that it's the first time in my career where I've ever had a residential buyer want their building to look like, want their house to look like an apartment. Hmm. <laughs> so if you build good enough apartments, that's that's kind of what you get. And so the apartment mansions were a, a success in many many ways. One of the things was while people were waiting for a house to get built, they would rent the apartment mansion to be there. Just like Greg, they wanted to be there as fast as they could be. They wanted to experience that quality of life that they wanted to, um, that they had bought into yeah. early on. Yeah. One of the, I mean, one of the things that I really recall that I, that I enjoyed uh, throughout our time working on the project is almost, it almost always felt like the project was like a big experiment. 
you know, like you were, you guys were always experimenting with different types of buildings, different layouts, different uh, street designs. Um, you know, you, you were always willing to take a site and completely rethink it uh, in, in terms of something that might be better. Um, so, so, I mean, that must've been kind of a crazy process because it was, it was very different than sort of a conventional home building process. Um, so I, I, I'm curious what you think about like that experience, if you felt that way. And then also in the process of that, you must've come across, you know, some ideas that were just loser ideas that just didn't work out. Uh, I'm, I'd love to know a couple of the things that, that didn't work out that, that you might caution other people on. There were no losers. <laughs> no, um, so that 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 kernel of experimentation is directly from Greg Whitaker, and he's feel he's kind of restless, and it was kind of like a, a big laboratory, and that came about because of our travels around the Midwest and beyond, looking at projects before we started. Um, Greg thought, you know in the betterment of the built environment and building communities, it would be nice to have a place that's centrally located like St. Charles that could be a, a place where people would come and visit and take a look at a variety of different things that would happen and, and at, the, at the same time do it affordably. I mean, I think that was the, the one of the threads that uh, throughout the throughout the 20 years, it's been, how, what can we do that's affordable mm -hmm. and that uh, gets most people being able to live in Newtown? But at any rate, so we did experiment with a wide variety of things. And I would say that the, I would say the less successful things are, are ideas that didn't get enough attention, didn't get enough love, uh, during the implementation, uh, you know, we were throwing off ideas here and there, and uh, uh, it, the coordination sometimes between engineering and architecture and the, wasn't as good as it could have been. Um, so, but we, I mean, there was a wide variety of experiments going on with a Wooner. Uh, driven condominium, garden apartments. Um, we did a three-story stacked studio, you know, three studios stacked on top of each other. Um, I mean, it's just, I when John Anderson, uh, our colleague, was in town in October, I took him on a trip of all the, all the experiments. And basically it was the, any unit that's smaller than a thousand square feet. And we did so many of those that are all different and all kind of cool in their own way. Uh -huh. um, the other thing, the other thing is because we're a rental and home buying community, um, we would do, a, you know, like maybe eight to 12 units or maybe even 20 units and maybe half of them sold on the market. The other half were held and used as apartments. So, so that, so that you know, things that didn't necessarily that the market didn't necessarily relate to still found a found a, a life in the rental market. That's interesting. So, you know, one of the other things that uh, a lot of uh, you know T and Ds dealt with, and 
as I realize that I say TND, people may not know what I'm talking about, but it was just a shorthand for traditional neighborhood development, which was kind of the some of the early language we used for new urbanist projects uh, that was always evolving. But, you know, a lot of most of the ones that were well done uh, became very successful uh, very quickly, uh, pushed the price points higher and I, I, there was obviously a lot of demand in those projects to build bigger and bigger houses for a higher price point. Um, did you did you all experience that? And and if so, like what? How did you deal with that? Um, not not so much because I think that um, I think the driving the price point up has to do with scarcity, and as long as the builder is continually building. It, there's still a steady supply. I think when Newtown is completely built out, that's when I would expect to see property values really go up because of scarcity, because it's not being built anymore. Right. It's nothing left. Yeah. Um, so. so let's also talk about, you know, the uh, obviously the plan started evolving uh, and it's been 20 years. So, Talk a little bit about just the evolution of the plan. Uh, things maybe, you know, we went through a major recession. Uh, been a lot of change, obviously, on Greg's side of the equation. Um, what have you seen from the evolution of it over two decades? Well, I think what, there were one thing that was said early uh, before we even started was you, you want to demonstrate the quality of life of the street by building both sides of the street at the same time. So you get a finished uh, street corridor that you, that looks credible. Um, I think that was very helpful and having all those sales at the very beginning uh, helped us to do that uh, early, early on. So you could come in uh, and see what you were buying. And I think that's one of the things that's most funny now is, is that those 438 people who bought it based on a ditch <laughs> and an amphitheater, um, that was a tremendous risk for those people to, to agree to the vision that we were presenting. Today, if you walk into Newtown, you can see exactly what it is. And... So it's not really very risky to to buy in Newtown today. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, getting back to your question, I'm sorry, I lost your question. No, it's just then how did the – just your thoughts on the evolution of that over a couple of oh, decades. Oh, the plan. Yeah, and the plan and, yeah. and, and all of that. So the Charette team included Seth Harry, who did our retail market study, and he was – pretty um, discouraging about mix of uses and amount of commercial we should buy, build. But the plan had some ideas that really needed more uh, commercial. And so that's one of the, well, that's one of the places where I feel like Newtown still has to grow into the amount of commercial that has been built, which isn't a tremendous amount. One of the plan, the original plans had a series of neighborhood centers mm -hmm. that were based on a five-minute walk radius, and that idea proved unsustainable because of the little amount of, of retail and commercial that um, 
got built. And then, I mean, the other thing that's, um, I mean, maybe it's, maybe disappointment is a strong word, but we're building one of the few places where we are building the only real place in St. Louis region where you can buy a house and have an office that's offsite and be able to walk between those two places. And I would have expected more people to be, uh, have the idea and have that uh, experience be captured. But we do have a lot of people in Newtown who run home-based businesses, but they aren't really in a brick and mortar office like I expected it to be. Interesting. Interesting. But it still could happen. I mean, it's still, it's still there, but the demand for uh, storefronts, I mean, it, it's parallels with, with the national trend for, you know, of commercial real estate. Right. Um, right. So it may or may not happen, but. Right. And then, so that was one of the things that changed the plan. The other thing that changed the plan was that there was a um, um, we went through during the recession. We went through a change of ownership, uh, and the land became uh, part of a bank resolution group who changed the boundaries of Newtown. And so the, the center of Newtown shifted. And subsequent to that, Greg has bought more land uh, close in to the amphitheater and is developing that. So the boundaries have changed. The number of centers have changed. Um, the amount of land is roughly the same as it was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh so it's been kind of resilient. I think the thing that we didn't understand getting back to the very beginning in the charrette was is that a town plan is great, but what DPZ produced for us was a code, an urban code, a zoning code that allowed us to build the type of buildings that we want to build up close to the street, a variety of different types, different setbacks for different types of buildings. It's a form-based code, <clears throat> and it was the first form-based code in Missouri and my understanding is <laughs> it was a, it was a variant of the smart code that was written right before the charrette, basically. But I think we were the only second community in the nation that adopted it and actually used it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, so that, that's a whole other podcast to talk about form-based code. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things you allude to there that, um, you know, we don't often talk about much in this is even even though Whitaker was a very large, established company, 500 employees, you mentioned when this took on, there was still an extraordinary amount of risk that was involved on their part in going through this project. And so when the, the recession hit in, you know, 2008 and started coming on, I mean, that was an earthquake uh, for the company as well as the the development. And it, it was sort of thing. It didn't just impact like smaller businesses, but it really impacted uh, larger businesses as well. Uh, yeah. One of the things that is important to say and hasn't been discussed enough is, is that the, the difficulties that, that 
Whitaker Homes had in 2008, 2009, 2010 were mostly due to the conventional subdivision communities that we were also building. We were never, we never thought we were going to abandon conventional completely. We were going to do both, Mm -hmm. but the, but the conventional suburban developments tanked much faster than Newtown. There's always been a, a market for Newtown because it's the only game in town. We thought when we were beginning, we were told actually by a market research firm that 18 months after we started selling houses in Newtown, there would be other copycat developers that would be doing new urbanistic or traditional neighborhood design um, to try to bleed off our market. And in fact, they have that hasn't happened to mm-hmm. any great degree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always thought that was interesting. That that's been the case in in other markets. Why? What, what's your belief about why that hasn't happened more in St. Louis and and frankly, even here in Kansas City, there's been a very little uh, of that type of uh, new development as well. I think I think there is a tremendous amount of inertia to keep home building the way it always was, and that. One of the things that's kind of interesting, there's many different ways you can compare traditional suburban development to traditional neighborhood development, like what we're doing. Uh, One is how it handles change. And that's, I think, comes back to what we were talking about in terms of people from from the western suburbs moving to Newtown, people from the city moving to Newtown, moving out to Newtown, is that... um, Conventional suburban development is, I've, I've, actually, this is borrowed directly from Andres Duani, which is, it's completely predictable what's going to happen in a conventional suburban development. And it's, it, there's no surprises and everything is, is flattened out. So it's, it's one way to do things. It's one shrub. It's one type of brick. It's, and it's designed not to change over time. Uh, Newtown St. Charles and these kind of new urban communities are vital places that are designed to change over time. And in fact, when we went to Seaside at first, one of the things that struck me was I could vision, I can envision Seaside evolving and being a real place 20 years from now, 50 years from now, a hundred years from now. But uh, uh, like many large urban centers, St. Louis has a, a growth like a tree with rings of houses that end, end up becoming um, all the same within the ring, a certain distance out from the core of the city. And the, that housing ends up becoming um, obsolete because family sizes changes and job um, locations change. And so those places, those uh, subdivisions that were built in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, they don't evolve. They're just the way they are. And, but Newtown is dynamic. It will, it will evolve. It continues to evolve now. That's part of what the role of being town architect is about, is, is that it, it's dealing with the changes that happen over time. And every, you know, like people change, places change too. They should be allowed to change. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that happened after 
um, after you really were rolling for a few years was Greg also started looking at projects in other cities and he uh, became interested in the Kansas City market. Um, and I, I know for a few years, he's had a project here in Independence, Missouri called Newtown Harmony, which uh, is a very, very different kind of effort. Um, I'm curious about your your thoughts and the experience of some of that project, which is which is one where he is not building the homes, I, I guess, acting more as a land developer uh, in that respect, but not building the homes and w- what a difference that makes just maybe pros and cons or or differences in that approach versus what you were able to do at Newtown. It's, it's a big challenge to not to build in a place where you're not there every day. And it's, we started out at Newtown Harmony only wanting to build a couple houses and kind of demonstrate the, the quality of the houses. And as I alluded to, St. Charles was is a labor of love um, on the part of Greg and wanting to live there and wanting to be there, being a part of it. And it's harder to, to well, it's just different to, to um, build in a place where you're not there, you're not living there, um, so it's not, it's more than just the principles. I mean, the principles of new urbanism that's based in the, in the charter for new urbanism is a great guide to building places, but you need people who believe in those principles and can move them forward along the way. And, and we haven't been able, I don't think as effectively as we should have been to discuss the principles and to uh, impart those principles on the builders, the home builders that are building in in St. Charles and are in in Harmony. And I think what I found after the pandemic was that that even in St. Charles, there were a lot of people who didn't really, weren't aware of the principles that the town was founded on. And uh, it, struck, it struck me that, that people were buying there and not really appreciating uh, what they bought into or even wanting what they what they bought into. And so uh, part of the last year has been as town architect going back into the community with presentations and being more visible and discussing the principles because um, – the people who bought those first 438 people and the people who bought in the first five or 10 years, you know, they were more um, aware of what the principles were. Now I, and then, you know, you build a certain amount and you go, well, yeah, you know, there's commercial down there. You know, you, you go through Newtown, you see it and you kind of, but you don't necessarily understand it or, or appreciate it. Um, and, I would say harmony is needs that too, and I think that's the next the next thing that I'm working uh, on doing is to get back out there to talk about the principles. And at the same time, the other thing that's interesting to me was is that the architecture of Kansas City is very different than than the architecture of St. Louis, and so we always were thinking that's that. Um, 
Newtown and Harmony would look different. Yeah. And it yeah. does and it does look different. And it's it's more of a western anything goes kind of yeah. place. It's and which is more like Kansas City. Yeah. It seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of it's kind of often said that uh if you're traveling east to west across the country that St. Louis is the last eastern city and Kansas City is the first western city and I think that's pretty apt. Um what what about the challenge of you know, managing multiple builders that are not you um, versus, you know, what you had in-house before. I mean, obviously there's an enormous difference. And when you have people uh, that are on part of your own staff, you have a measure of control and coordination that you just don't have otherwise. But what what's that been like? Well, there's even a finer point than, than that, in that the people who have been building in – some of the builders in Newtown of Harmony don't have subs. They go from one house to the next house to the next house. That every house is built, every crew is new. So uh, one of the things that uh, Steve Muzan talks about is going out and and meeting the people who build the houses, showing them how to build an eave right, showing them how to how to detail a porch right. But in the case of some of these builders that framer is building one house and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And then the next framer comes in and they have to do it all over again. And then they're gone. So there's no continuity of, of framing and detailing. And that's, that's a bigger challenge. Even if the builders wanted to be consistent, they can't because that's the way the system is set up, that they don't have on staff, uh, framing and mm-hmm. trim and things like that. So, so that's a big challenge. That's a really, that's, I, I, and I think I also need to say something I didn't say when I talked about the 20 year um, anniversary of the town planning charrette is that in the New Testament Charles, we were, Built, it was built by union carpenters and union companies. And there's a tremendous uh, advantage to using union labor that is skilled and there's the continuity. Some of the people uh, in Newtown have been framing houses all 20 years. And so they have seen it so many different ways. And, they, and they're creative, too. I mean, that's the other thing about the people who have built Newtown St. Charles is that, that we've thrown a lot of different plans out at them. At last count, in the last 10 years, I just saw that we have done, um, I think I saw like a thousand different plans. Wow. So it's it's all everything in Newtown is customized. I mean, it's seldom more than a couple houses before something changes. And so the labor unions and the people who have built that I deal with on a daily basis that have built Newtown St. Charles really have uh, contributed so much mm-hmm. to the ability of making it a super customized place uh that and it's it's hard to say because it's 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 hard to define because it's 
on one hand, Newtown is full of background buildings. It's all fabric buildings. It's not a lot of landmark buildings. Mm -hmm. But within that fabric, there is an infinite variety of different things that have happened. Yeah. And, and you kind of get that sense when you're walking through it, especially. that It's like trying to, even for me, seeing a model, you know, walking down the street, going, well, what model is that? It's... It's hard because there's so many different, so much variety. Yeah. I One of the things I always had a hard time wrapping my uh, arms around with Newtown was uh, just, again, the difference between the Kansas City and St. Louis markets where you were building with union labor uh, at Kansas City. Kansas City is a, basically a non-union market, uh, especially on the residential side, less so on the commercial side, but, um, but yet your union built uh, houses were significantly less expensive that you were delivering to the market than the non-union stuff in Kansas City, uh, and I, f I felt like you had a higher quality to it as well, which was uh, it was just, it was sort of you know one of those things that how do you get your mind around that when uh, coming from our market? Uh, it it is, and, and I think that the unions have something to do with that. Um, yeah, it it uh, it. National builders have come to look at Newtown and come to look at Whitaker and don't understand how we do what we do. Yeah. But somehow we do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's not, I mean, that's the saddest, I mean, in 20 years perspective, I started out thinking, well, you know, why doesn't everyone build like this? Why isn't, why isn't this becoming the standard or more popular or more accepted? And, and I was thinking even last night about this uh, in preparation for the podcast. And I was thinking that in the end, I think that it's, um, I started out thinking that new urbanism was the future. And I was thinking that it was the innovation. And I think it's ended up for me being, it's part of trying to bring back a tradition of building neighborhoods like they were built historically 100 years ago. I mean, it really is a throwback in a way to the the way places were built 100 years ago. And the way I came to this conclusion was thinking about the war that Newtown St. Charles is having with automobiles and, and the way cars have re rewritten I think basically everything about building in America and where we've ended up, um, you know, so much today we're talking about electric cars and talking about self-driving cars, but nobody's talking about no cars, just walking or biking. Nobody, you know, a car is a car is a car. It still needs to have energy put in to move around. And we're so married to, the idea that a car is freedom, that, and it's this is ironic because I've been thinking about how I got into architecture. I got into architecture when I couldn't become a car designer. I wanted to be a car designer. I was well, when I was eight. I drew nothing but cars. Cars were, were everything, and I love cars and I love interesting cars and and. Um, and but cars are you know it's it's movement it's transportation and then when I learned 
to sail. I drew sailboats and uh, sail, sailing was everything. And then I ended up not being able to go to Naval Architecture School and ended up going to architecture school as a thro throwback, my second choice. And now I'm here looking back on 40 years of being an architect and thinking that cars have really ruined for, <laughs> for, for America. It's just, I just, the idea that it's, everything is freedom is getting away and moving. As I get older, it's like freedom is being able to stay home. Freedom is being able to, to, to visit with your neighbors or play cards or walk down the street and see people you like and, and, and talk to and, and, um, all the things that are built in and folded into Newtown are things that exist in old neighborhoods. So hopefully Newtown will become an old neighborhood. <laughs> well, Tim, I think that's actually a great place to wrap. Uh, it's a great closing sentiment. Uh, I do want to ask you before I close, this is the Messy City podcast. So I like to talk to people about places that, you know, are uh, – that they love that are, have those sort of qualities of a place built by many hands and developed maybe slowly over time, which is ironic from our entire discussion talking about uh, Newtown St. Charles. But I'm curious if you have a favorite place that, that meets that criteria. Well, I'm, um, I currently, I, well, currently in the last 10 years after I lived in Newtown for eight years, I, moved across the river. I finally got up the courage after 30 years to cross the Mississippi River. And I live in a river town called Alton, Illinois. Alton, Illinois is over 200 years old. It was a steamboat port. It was, um, you know, it's a place where Abraham Lincoln came down and practiced law. It's deeply rooted to the history of the Midwest. And, um, the community, the neighborhoods around Alton, the Alton neighborhoods actually um, were built with love by a variety of different hands. But there were, you know, one or two architects that were involved. There were a number of building companies, but not, not a lot. And they, it has all the things that Newtown has. And um, I just, you know, I don't think I'll be around when Newtown's 100 years old, but I hope that it ages as well as our uh, Alton, Illinois community is. And, and I think I think it will because of the ability to change yeah. over time. Yeah. So. That's great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tim. Uh, for anybody who wants to uh, find you or track you down and learn more or talk to you more, what's the what's the best way to find you? Um. You can find me on Facebook, uh, Tim Bussey. Um, also, our company studio, Archaeus, which is the, the town planning and architecture firm that, that I'm part of, um, is also on Facebook. Um, but you can also uh, reach me at tim at studioarchaeus.com. Uh, and you can find me. All right. So come and find me and let's continue the conversation. I'd like that. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim, thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. Thank you, Kevin. Bye.